Now the talk is about planting a metta garden. Meditation is so much like uh, gardening that in the springtime, I think the metaphor of uh, understanding that being on this retreat is like uh, first uh, going to your field that you might um, plant and going to the earth and digging it up and planting a garden. And for those people who are doing that right now, around this time of day, their body hurts. <laughs> because they haven't been used to using those muscles and they've been working hard all day. And we've been doing the same thing. But we don't always um, know that we have the seeds and that we have the shovel and that we're digging the earth. It's not as clear, maybe. Uh, so I wanted to remind us all that that's what we're doing here, is planting a loving-kindness garden. If you have ever planted a garden, uh, I think that, or you've seen it, you see that it takes a lot of faith. You know, we have this winter that happens, and then um, the earth is kind of hard, and one has to uh, dig the earth so that it's soft enough to receive the seeds. And then we work it and do the best we can to create the conditions for the, the sun and the water and the earth. Maybe we uh, fertilize the earth enough so that it's uh, healthier and stronger. This is all what we're doing here in these first few days. It's getting the, the mind and heart soft enough uh, to receive the metta. And then the seeds grow, but also the weeds grow. You know, it's quite, it's quite a practice. Mostly what it requires is great patience. Patience is an aspect of metta. Patience is acceptance. And so much of, um, I think the metta practice is accepting our conditional love, wherever that is, uh, because so much of what we see is conditional love not the unconditional love that we want so much to wish and to experience. I'm reading a book called Epitaph for a Peach. And it's about a family farm. And I'm going to read from it, I think, a few times during the talk tonight. This uh, man's father and grandfather had a peach orchard, and he still does. And the peaches are very sweet and juicy, and they're the kind of peaches that maybe don't hold up in the markets that uh, want the peaches hard uh, and not juicy, so they last for three or four or five weeks on the shelf and ship well far away. So he's having trouble finding a market for his peaches. And he's also starting to try to farm organically so it's, it's, the book is a story about him almost losing the farm, but also him trying to uh, let go of uh, chemical ways of dealing with weeds and pests. <laughs> so this is springtime, shovel of earth. The blade slices into the soil. My muscles tense and push the shovel into the moist ground, dark and damp the sweet, warm smell of wet earth. 
The tool eases through a mat of weeds, the ground flush with activity. The metal face slices partially in, the soil is heavy and gently resists. Roots extend deep into an underground tangled mass beyond my sight. I can't count the thousands of shovelfuls of earth I have moved in my life. But I like to think of the thousands that lie in my future if I am fortunate. Do we have that sense of relating to each step of the retreat or each phrase of metta, like each shovelful of earth? Do we look forward to a moment where we face another time of aversion or look forward to another time where we feel unlovable uh, so that we can get liberated. And I thought that was such a beautiful way of really describing how so much of his life is shoveling and that he's done it thousands of times and how much he looks forward to it. If we can appreciate the process of purification of becoming liberated, we start to understand that, that it's not just the moments where we experience unconditional love, but it's, it's, each, it's the fullness of the whole retreat, just like it's really just the fullness of being human. So try to remember that when you're walking or sitting or eating, Uh, that it's like planting a seed or digging in the ground. You're planting a garden. When we talk about patience, it's important to ask ourselves, well, how is it really going? You know, what's really happening? Versus what did I want to happen this retreat? Or what did I expect to happen? Or am I comparing from yesterday or maybe my last retreat. Uh, The meditation is about what is happening rather than what I want to be happening. And that's where we move from conditional to unconditional. In the wisdom practice and mindfulness practice, uh, we're moving toward unconditional peace, a happiness and a peace that isn't dependent on experience or conditions. In the metta practice, we're moving toward a love that doesn't depend on the presence of pleasure and pain. Unconditional. The meditation practice so much boils down to our intention. Is there the intention with any experience to judge it or to understand it? Uh, so really, we're, we're purifying our motivation, whether it's metta or, or mindfulness. It's just over and over again, that purification of whether we can really um, be where we are in the present moment with what's happening, or <laughs> do we judge it, compare. You know, and then there's that um, stream of dissatisfaction that runs through our life from that... Um, intention to judge. The biggest obstacle in our practice is the judgment, and patience is like a cool bomb on that 
dissatisfaction in the heart. There's a saying in Hawaii, um, kind of a local saying, uh, main thing, keep cool head. <laughs> when I went off to Burma this year, Steve looked at me and he said, main thing, keep cool head. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's sort of the local uh, way of describing being patient. Back to this farm, this man struggling to keep his farm. This is uh, his description of trying to become more natural or organic. Chaos defines my farm. I allow natural grasses to go wild. I see new six-legged creatures migrating into my fields, which now look like green pastures. I watch with paranoid panic wanting to believe all will be fine, while terrified I may lose the crop and eventually the farm. I need a lesson on managing chaos. I spend the spring battling nature, trying to farm differently, hoping somehow I am contributing to the quest to save my peach. The more I struggle, the more the burden seems to weigh. Each new approach generates more questions. The complexity of working with nature slips into a growing pattern of chaos. I'm trying to listen to my farm. Before, I had no reason to hear the sounds of nature. The sole strategy of conventional farming seems to be dominance. Now, with each passing week, I venture into fields full of life and change, clinging to a belief in my work and a hope that it's working. So it's the end of a third day of a retreat. Do you notice any more chaos? in the mind, from, from letting it be. We're very much uh, tending toward resistance, control, uh, wanting to get rid of things, not wanting to face how it is. Uh, it's very similar, and when we listen to a farm and try to let things be and not control it so much. It's the very same way as with our heart or mind. This is the process of starting to listen to the heart rather than judge it. What's really happening? So maybe today, if you look at a whole day, (laughs) you know, the whole range happens. Maybe it's even in five minutes, but certainly in a day, we go from uh, such ranges of experience such highs and lows, low energy, high energy, metta, hatred, discouragement, doubt, sleepiness, you know, over and over and over. It's amazing. And do we have that relationship of controlling, trying to get rid of things, wanting something that isn't happening versus the patience and allowing things to be as they are? 
17 years old, I volunteered at a place called Laughing Brook Sanctuary, which is outside of the city of Springfield, Massachusetts. And it was a sanctuary based on the Thornton Burgess books. Uh, So uh, my job was to uh, take classes of school children to different animals, New England animals, that were in pretty nice places in this sanctuary. So I would bring them to a raccoon and a woodchuck and a fox and owls. Um, And I thought this was going to be a really cool job. I still wonder why there was a boa constrictor, a huge boa constrictor, as part of my job, (laughs) because it certainly was out of, you know, it wasn't really my memory of the Thornton Burgess books, you know, which were very, you know, easy and sweet. Um, So there was this big boa constrictor that I had to pick up and (laughs) show uh, the children and pass it around. Uh, My conditioning is such that uh, my mother had this incredible phobia about snakes. I mean, just off the charts, incredible nightmares every night, snake pit dreams, and she kind of passed it down to my older sister. And I remember fighting this as a little girl, like just fighting that conditioning. And I used to intentionally play with little garter snakes and keep saying, I'm not afraid of snakes. And it just kept seeping in. I mean, even if there was um, a television program where there was a snake on television, it was mass hysteria. You know, it was just this incredible fear. You know, just my sister still has it. Uh, One time she visited Steve and I at our wedding, and I had a little um, fake wooden snake in this room, and my sister wouldn't even go past the room if the door was open. You know, it's a very deep (laughs) fear. Uh, So I have it. And I don't have that degree of the phobia, but I have that fear with snakes. Uh, By the time I was a teenager, I had lost the intention to understand. I'd lost the interest in snakes um, that I tried hard to have. Uh, So I would walk into this room that Rosie Boa, her name was Rosie Boa. (laughs) And (laughs) I'd have a little talk with Rosie. I'd say, you know, I'm really afraid of you. And just when I pick you up, you know, just try to put up with me. And I was so bad that um, I'd have this class of children, and I would look to see what boy usually was the most interested <laughs> in snakes, and he, you know, whose eyes were lit up, and I would actually throw it. <laughs> I, would, I would pick up the snake and throw it at this poor kid. And then I'd act completely equanimous and tell him to, you know, pass it around, you know. And then I would just be stiff as a board, you know, just totally stiff, waiting for the moment when I'd be handed it back and I would act totally like, now we've all met Rosie. (laughs) Throw her in this place again and, you know, move on. Uh, It was so painful. And I kept thinking that if I pushed it, and pushed it and kept facing this every day that I was going to get rid of this. But it didn't go away. You know, by the end of this semester, I just went in, you know, to say goodbye to Rosie. (laughs) And she was so patient and so great. I mean, I, you know, I just had this relationship where I I apologized to Rosie for never getting over the fear um, and left. 
I didn't feel defeated, but I didn't understand why it didn't work. And I thought that should work. Uh, And I had no idea that I needed tools to help me learn how to experience the fear, that pushing myself, it was like that same thing, trying to control it. I was trying to get rid of it. My motivation was really not very pure. So I tried to bulldoze through it rather than listen to it, to respect it. One of the aspects of metta that has helped me more than anything is metta has helped me learn how to experience fear. And if I can't um, experience it, I've learned not to push it. It's amazing how uh, with fear, gentleness and metta is so strengthening and reassuring. And uh, by doing the practice of metta, I've learned that it's okay to back off rather than push it, and that that gentleness actually gives me the strength to go through the fear when I have the mindfulness and the metta. Metta has taught me a lot more about patience. Another metaphor for uh, the practice besides gardening or, or doing these shovelfuls of earth is actually more like as we go through the retreat, it's more like an archaeology dig. And it's like we have this very fine brush, which is sitting, walking, sitting, walking. And this brush just helps us start to um, very gently start to expose the conditional love. It exposes the fear, the deeper roots of hatred and um, attachment. When we are able to do the metta practice in a way where the concentration is happening, like Steve described last night. So we're able to aim the, connect, the, aim the attention. We're able to say a phrase. We're able to understand it. That's the, um, the connecting, understanding. Uh, if we can maintain that, which is part of being on the retreat, you're trying to not only do it once, but we try to maintain it. Uh, over time, there'll be enough concentration so that it'll shift to joyful interest. Joyful interest is when we are interested in the person or being that we're doing. And it's very similar to when we're with the breath in mindfulness practice. You know, it's just another breath, and it's just another breath. But if we can aim and sustain the attention enough, suddenly there are times it's unexpected that we become interested in it. And this is a deepening of the concentration. Any time where we can aim and sustain the attention, and then when there's this joyful interest, at some point we break the barrier between ourselves and the other. There's no giver. There's no receiver. There's that experience of oneness or, or interconnectedness. And so it's not like I am sending metta to you. The duality breaks down. And we feel that person in our heart. It's like there's no separation. And in that time, we understand that that's the truth. It's very pure because it's the truth that we're not separate, and it's just a misperception that we're separate. This is partly um, why we go through the sitting and the walking. 
And it's good to try to do a chunk of time where you stay more secluded, you know, sit, walk, sit, sit, walk, sit, walk before lunch, taking chunks of time where you really try to maintain the continuity helps deepen the concentration at times. That understanding that comes through breaking the barrier feels wonderful. Um, That's purity. That purity um, is very powerful, and it's purifying. Uh, So taking a dirty cloth and putting it in pure water is like when we experience the unconditional love, uh, the dirt where we're still not free, where we still suffer, will appear. The dirt comes out. That's purification. And this is part of the practice. We go from the purity to the purification. And we tend to think of the purity as good practice. That's our judgment. And then when we start struggling with being unlovable or no good or hating the person (laughs) next to us or whatever, we, we judge that as bad practice. There's the judgment again. And so we get lost in in judging the practice and trying to get back to the purity uh, rather than facing what is and learning to work with it. In the metta practice, we do try to keep going with the concentration. It's a little different than the mindfulness practice where you would shift right away to the anger or to the sadness or whatever. Here you uh, keep going with the metta, and then if you can't keep going, you go to what's easy. You shift to someone easier, or you shift to yourself. And then if you can't, then you try to be mindful of whatever it is that's happening. Uh, that's That mindfulness of the anger, the mindfulness of the lust, or whatever it is, it's how we bring understanding to where we suffer. That's what enables us to also break the barrier between ourself and another, between ourself and ourself. It took me a long time to understand that relationship and practice between purity and purification and to have great patience with it. As we go along, the archaeology did gets deeper. <laughs> we keep thinking we should be done already. You know, it should be like we do one layer and it's like, well, I free from suffering. <laughs> Time to go home. You know, it's like it's that we don't have any models for this. You know, lifetimes. You know, that takes a lot of patience. It's we're just so trained you know, to at least put in four years and get a degree or something. You know, this is so different because it's a way of life. You know, it's, it's, it's learning how to bring metta and mindfulness to our experience rather than judging it, controlling it, manipulating it. So what happens when we are <coughs> practicing and the love becomes conditional. It becomes more intense sometimes. Conditional love uh, has different aspects. So sometimes it's not that intense. It's kind of mild. So maybe we're mildly nostalgic, or maybe we're mildly sentimental. 
But maybe it, it appears that instead of um, wishing well, we're wanting love from that person. That happened to me so many times where I'd think I was wishing someone well and that it was really unconditional. And when I look back at it, or when I would really look closely, it was still wanting. And it's not that that's wrong or bad, it's just wanting. Uh, and so it's really careful to not judge it. You can, you can become interested in that and learn to be mindful of it rather than push it away. We're at the place in the retreat where you're going to start noticing more of the resistance to this. And it's important to know that it's metta that often melts the resistance to the, uncon- to the conditional love. Mindfulness is um, recognizing what's happening, accepting what's happening. That's the patience and acceptance. It's becoming interested in the defense or the controlling. And then it's not taking it personally. So at some point, you will have to bring this understanding, uh, awareness to the experience when it becomes conditional. And we start to see that it's okay. It's just wanting, or it's just nostalgia. You can let it come and go, and then start in again with a metta when you can. There are times when, (coughs) you know, that intensity of wanting uh, is really painful. Like, it's not just a little wanting love from somebody. There were times when I would feel literally like I would die from that neediness you know, on the retreat and in my life. It's like that conditional love can be so intense that it, it's like this unbearable neediness or this unbearable loneliness that also can come up. And we have enormous resistance to those experiences. And it's possible, I've seen with the metta practice, that the metta allows us to soften around this. It's really the resistance that's so painful. Over and over again, you'll see that. The actual neediness isn't so bad, but that fear of it, or the feeling like it will kill us, um, is so painful. So this takes great patience. This is the garden that I'm talking about. You know, that it it takes patience to start um, working the soil around some of the roots of of things like neediness, rather than (laughs) wanting to rip it out and get rid of it. And then there's erotic love and sensual love. You know, it can move from that wanting to that kind of lusty, um, seductive love. You know, that's, you know, you're sitting there and everybody looks like they're okay, right? You know, sitting here during the metta. But at some point, that kind of um, conditional love will appear. And again, it's not like it's wrong or that... um, we're trying to push that away when that appears. You'll keep trying to keep going with the metta if it comes in strongly, like the nostalgia or neediness. At some point, you might have to be mindful of it and let it come and go. And know that there's a difference between conditional love and unconditional love. When we teach in Honolulu, Stephen and I, um, we rent a zendo that up in the back of a valley, and it's about 20 minutes from our house. 
Oh, so when I do the late night sitting, I often have to work on the schedule and the interview list for the next day. And I usually drive out pretty late. Uh, and this past 10-day um, retreat that I was teaching there, there was a station on the radio that um, a 19-year-old young man had, uh, you know, made one of the buttons that you press, you know, when you push the radio button. It wasn't a station I picked, but I was starting to get into the station. Uh, so when I would pull out of the uh, <laughs> retreat, I would press the station. And the three nights in a row, the song came on. And, and it was, um, might as well face it, you're addicted to love. <laughs> that, that's what happens over and over in the song. Might as well face it, you're addicted to love. Uh, and sometimes I think when we're sitting a metta retreat, you know, that's partly the theme song. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like we're different radio stations. And sometimes we have the Saving the World station. You know, and sometimes it's our career station, and sometimes it's the romance one. Uh, and we keep trying to press another button. Uh, but if the more we try to get rid of it, that force of trying to get rid of it gives it more power. It's like that with each top tune that we have. And it's being willing to be able to go, oh, the patience. Oh, yeah, that's my station. <laughs> I like this one. <laughs> you know, whether we don't like it or we like it, we're hooked. You know, it's like a... a fishing hook that goes out into the pond and we hear that particular thought stream and we bite, you know, and we try to talk ourselves out of it, but we get hooked. And the only thing that gets us out is acceptance. And then we do the metta or the mindfulness. It takes this great patience. It, that station is okay. You don't have to fight it. All you have to do is see it clearly. The more you bulldoze it, the more it'll come back at you. Uh, so this, this, this takes such patience. It's the patience to be soft enough to not resist and then to see it clearly. And you can see how the metta is so useful for that. It melts. It melts the resistance. We don't have to take it so personally. The other side of um, what comes up with the metta practice uh, it can be that self-centered love, uh, but it can also go to the aversion side. Uh, so for me, I think the hardest thing that would come up in metta practice was this incredible fear of not being lovable. You know, it would just be this knot that I really didn't want to look at. You know, so there's that, that's an aversion side of the metta practice that comes up, the fear of not being lovable or the hatred. <laughs> hating myself, hating others. Uh, it was, it's a painful thing to have to look at the conditional love. So this, this can be mild, just like the nostalgia or the sentimentality can be mild uh, rather than that deep neediness. The um, nobody loves me, everybody hates me can be that kind of cute, <laughs> you know, a little bit like, oh well, I'm no good. You know, to that feeling of just that excruciating broken-heartedness. And it's where we really numb out. And it's often where the need to be special comes from. 
You know, we go from that not feeling worthy or good enough to wanting to be the best yogi here and wanting to be noticed. You know, we go from that, <laughs> I'm the worst yogi, yogi here to the best yogi here. And this will all come from comparing, judging. It's important to bring the understanding that we learn in the mindfulness practice to the metta metta practice when these are coming up because it takes great understanding to let them come and go by themselves and to not take them so personally. You know, this purification, that's what it's all about, is learning how to do this. A lot of you have heard this before, but all of us need to be reminded that Life is a stream of change, so that each moment of consciousness there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. So we're living as a human being in this world of unpredictable change, pleasure, pain, each moment of consciousness. So if someone is pleasant, we tend to, if we're not aware of that and we aren't mindful of it, we'll get hooked. And if someone is unpleasant, for some reason, we push them away or we get afraid. And it's just not with human beings, it's with a snake or a mosquito or the sound of a bird or a butterfly. There are pleasant and unpleasant experiences that are changing. Uh, so we live in this world of deep uh, vulnerability. So our conditioned responses are basically the hindrances to this world of change. Or very more simply, our conditioned response is trying to control it. We tend to want to hold on to the pleasure through attachment. And we tend to try to uh, control the unpleasant or pain by pushing it away or through fear. And it's just that we don't understand this. We don't understand how we suffer or why we suffer that we suffer so much. So we need to bring this understanding into the metta practice when the concentration drops away. When the concentration is there and you're just kind of going along, um, this isn't so applicable. You know, it's like a heaven-hell practice. When the concentration is there and the metta is there, it's wonderful. Um, And you're developing mindfulness of metta then. When the... the, um, rug gets pulled out and you get kind of clobbered through this purification process uh, with aversion or attachment and all that I've just described, at some point you'll need to bring the mindfulness in and learn from it, grow from it. It's part of the garden. One of the ways that I worked with this on my metta retreats, um, and still do, is I would use the kind of classical traditional phrases when things were on a roll, and I developed these other phrases when things were difficult. <laughs> so these were, I had these two sets of phrases, and I could tell where I was in the practice pretty much by what phrases I was using. So when it was difficult, I'd say, may I be happy just as I am. May I be peaceful with whatever's happening. May I love myself completely. Because the tendency to judge myself and to bring so much self-hatred into the process uh, was amazing. 
uh, so just learning to use those particular phrases helped me bring in the equanimity and the mindfulness to that process. And then when nothing difficult was coming up, I could just kind of go along, may I be safe and protected, may I be happy and peaceful. It, you know, it, it, the understanding uh, would kind of go into those more easily because I wasn't resisting something. I think of this practice as another mirror. It's like a spiritual mirror. Mindfulness practice is a certain kind of mirror. Uh, The metta practice is a kind of mirror. When I shifted from um, the benefactor, who for me was a dear friend, to the dear friend category, I picked someone who I really thought would be easy and a dear friend. And when I was doing this person, and taking the time, you know, it's like all of a sudden we have this time when we take the time to really be with that person. Uh, I noticed much more clearly these levels of pain that she was in that I wasn't really facing. Uh, and I had this incredible resistance and judgment and anger that the more I sent this person metta, the more I was seeing this person's pain. Uh, And it was so hard because here I was trying to talk myself into, you know, this is a dear friend, you know, it's good, I can send her meta, she'll get out of this pain. Uh, And it was all just a great mirror for what um, I needed to look at. But when I really looked closely, the resistance to her pain was actually the resistance to the same kind of pain in myself. And I I had to drop her. (laughs) <laughs> I had to I had to put her in the difficult category. And that was really painful because I had this whole image or idea about who this person was. And so that you see how that it becomes like a mirror. It's not so much it was nothing really about her. It was all about me. And I really want to remind you because I've heard people mention how um you know this person really doesn't need it or you know Will it really affect this person? It's not about that. It's really about your ability to wish well. This is all about a purification of your own heart. Whether somebody can receive metta or not is, is karmic. It's where they are at. But this isn't what we're doing here. What we're doing here is practicing our ability to wish well. So we're not so focused on the results. The results can be immense and wonderful, uh, but that's not the focus. The focus is on um, what happens for us as we do this process, and can we do it, and can we practice it, and cultivate it, develop it. first tried to do metta for myself, um, I knew it would be very difficult. And I waited to do a long retreat. My first metta retreat was a two-month retreat. And I knew it was going to be hard. But I actually feel that if I could do it, anybody can do it. 
You know, it was such a, I mean, I was such a difficult person for myself that um, I eventually had to uh, take out this little teddy bear. And I, you know, it was so humiliating to see that I had to choose an inanimate object. You know, it wasn't even like I, t- I had to, a butterfly or a bird or a cat. It was like a teddy bear. <laughs> uh, and for me to get to that place of humility, where that's where I had to start with myself, was hard. You know, wherever you are with this, if you're having any difficulty, maybe it's not with yourself, maybe it's with all beings, or maybe it's with a difficult person, or maybe it's with a dear friend, or whatever. But it's important to just know that wherever you are is okay. And we start with there. Uh, And whenever I look at this teddy bear now, I have such a fondness for that process that I went through. You know, because I see that by sticking with it and staying with it, not forcing it, but being gentle, that my ability to wish it for myself has changed tremendously. You know, there there is <laughs> hope. I mean, again, if I could go through the changes I've gone through with that, I know anybody can. And it's all <clears throat> just a matter of uh, patience and being willing to be where we are. The metta will melt the resistance, and the metta garden does grow. I had an experience um, in Burma this year that I wanted to share around impatience. This is my second trip to Burma. Uh, And so I didn't do a lot of practice in Asia. And some people will say that uh, practice in Asia, that Asia itself is the practice. You know, it's just, it's a whole different world. And we tend to like to have things happen on schedule and to get things done in a certain period of time. And I was teaching a three-week retreat with a Sayadaw, Sayadaw Ulakana, in a monastery there, a 650-year-old monastery. It's It's an exquisite, wonderful experience. Uh, And I had one day that was sort of off, you know, and I was looking forward to it. Uh, And I had set up a question and answer period about maybe 2.30 in the afternoon. And then someone I knew, her son, uh, had to leave the retreat a little early, and I was going to meet him at this bridge across the Irrawaddy with a bunch of the staff. Uh, so the staff know that I can tend to run over time. And they kept telling me, you have to be down where the bus will take us at 3.30. You know, so that was like echoing in my head. It was 20 past 3, and a lot of people were still raising their hands, and I was like, mm, I have to be down there at 3.30. So I, I stopped in time, and I wanted to go to the bathroom on my way down the hill to, uh, to go off on this bus. So on my way down, one of the yogis uh, had a question, and I could tell it was really urgent. So I said, well, you know, we can talk about it as we walk down the hill. So we were walking down the hill, uh, and someone came up to me and said, "Um, the bus is going to leave at 4 o'clock. So I said, okay, good. So I did this interview, and I went to the bathroom, um, and then someone ran up to me and said, Uh, the bus is leaving now. And it was just 
the beginning of this uh, drama. So I went rushing down to where the bus was supposed to leave, and everybody was sitting there. You know, they'd already been waiting a half an hour, and there was no sign of any movement at all. So we waited there another 45 minutes. Um, and then Saida Ulakana came out of his place that he stays, and he walked by us, and he just started laughing. <laughs> I mean, I don't know <laughs> what was going on, but I, did, I got the feeling when he started laughing that patience was really going to become an issue. Um, he looked like, you know, it was a laugh like, I wonder if the bus is ever going to come. Uh, but we had set up this time with this a young person, and I was really worried that we, we had to do it, you know, that what would happen if we didn't. Um, so about maybe a half an hour later, this bus came, and we got on it. You know, none of, you know there was no, nobody who spoke Burmese and English, so we had no translator. <laughs> so we all got on this bus, and we went, uh, we thought we were going to where we wanted to go. <laughs> And it was this great trip until we weren't where we were supposed to be. And we were in this town, you know, and, and it was this market. And they went food shopping, you know, at the market. And we were all, it was incredible. I mean, it was just like so hard. And, and all that kept going through my mind, it was really hot and it, and it was really crowded and it was really dirty. And I just wanted to be back in my cootie resting. It was my day off, you know, and I was just getting incredibly unhappy and incredibly impatient, so much suffering. Um, plus, I was so caught in time around trying to meet this person, and it was getting more and more impossible. So I went out into the market, and I saw this woman selling flowers. And it's very simple, but people in Burma right now, a lot of them are incredibly poor. It's very difficult. And I went up to her, and I bought a bunch of beautiful pink and uh, magenta flowers. She was so happy. Not many people buy flowers. It's a luxury. So I bought the flowers, and I just stared at them <laughs> for the next hour while we were waiting uh, for the next uh, vehicle. Uh, and it just changed. Just, the, just being able to be with the flowers and see her happiness. And eventually we got in the dark to this place, uh, met this person, got back really late, uh, and it turned out that that bus that took us to the market, uh, Saira Ulakana had, um, we have a hospital project and a school project in the, the village. The, the people in the village had been working from 8 o'clock till, no, they worked till midnight that night, pouring three cement floors of a new TB wing on the hospital. And Saira wanted to feed everybody. So spontaneously, he had sent, you know, some, they had sent these people off to town to buy food for all the people working. And then he had the monks serve these people dinner that, that um, poured the three floors. So when we came back from this little excursion, uh, Sayadaw had us watch the monks serve all the village people um, dinner. And then we went over to the hospital and watched them pour the rest of the floors till midnight. You know, so that it just shifted from that incredible impatience to this great teaching around patience.
The Buddha taught that loving kindness, the experience of loving kindness, is just like that moment when a mother cow looks at her newborn calf and wishes them well. Or you can think of it as a parent seeing that connection, that newborn, and wishing well. It's important to remember that when we do this practice, we're the mother or parent cow and we're the calf. It's like we're developing both within us. And it's just, eventually, it's like the metta is a blessing. So we're learning to bless. And we're blessing um, what is to be blessed. It's like, again, there's no giver, no receiver. It's not a separate person blessing a separate person. It's just this connection not you, not me, uh, and a deep just wishing well. And to think that we can do this, you know, that to think that we can learn to relate to ourselves as a newborn with that kind of fullness of blessing, and then to relate to all the people around us and in this world and the beings that way, uh, it's quite a gift. We repeat that a lot, but the loving kindness is a great gift It's a great garden that we're planting here. So please have the patience to let it ripen, digest it, take the time. It takes time. And if you just have that gentle determination to keep going, it sinks in and it changes us. And then it changes the world. So let's sit for a minute. May we be happy just as we are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.
donate.